RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Professor Paul Connett is a graduate of Cambridge University and holds a PhD in chemistry from Dartmouth College. He specialised in environmental chemistry and toxicology. Over the past 38 years, his research on waste management has taken him to 49 states in the US, seven provinces in Canada and 69 other countries where he's given over 2,500 pro bono public presentations. Ralph Nader. Yes, the Ralph Nader said of Paul Connett, he is the only person I know who can make waste interesting. In 2013, Paul published the book, The Zero Waste Solution, Untrashing the Planet One Community at a Time. The book has a forward by actor Jeremy Irons, who hosted the full-length documentary Trashed, in which Paul appears. Paul now has an association with the community of Tiawamutu and the waste to energy plant that's proposed for that town. Fired up Waikato locals have hit the streets a couple of Sundays ago in protest at a plan to build a waste to energy incinerator plant near Tiawamutu schools and homes. Global Contracting Solutions, GCS, is behind the idea. It already processes and recycles waste in Auckland, Hamilton and New Plymouth under the name Global Metal Solutions. It wants to burn 150,000 tonnes of old tyres, plastics, industrial and household waste annually, generating enough electricity for 15,000 households. So going back to that Ralph Nader comment, he said of Professor Paul Connett, our guest, he's the only person I know who can make waste interesting. Professor Connett, welcome to our show. Great to have you. Is waste interesting? Can it be interesting? It is. It is. It's actually fascinating. Um, uh, Really, waste puts the whole global issue into everybody's hands. It's it's our individual responsibility to do the right thing. And if we do, it takes us towards sustainability. If we do the wrong thing, it takes us in the opposite direction. Waste is, is the beginning of the fight back in terms of fighting climate change and a really overconsumption. It's overconsumption that has given us the huge amount number of problems that we have in the environment today. I said in the uh, introduction that you are working with the Te Awamutu or Waipu community in Waikato uh, who um, are objecting to this incinerator plant. Do they have something to be worried about? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. At the local level, the national level, and and of course, the global level, because this is a step in the wrong direction. It's going back to the 20th century or even the 19th century. The first waste to energy uh, trash incinerators were built in Germany in the late 19th century. It's the wrong solution. Um, There are many, many problems here. Number one is that this company has never built or operated and incinerated before. You just can't assume because somebody has done it in Germany well for a few years that that, that's going to be transferred to New Zealand. The New Zealand authorities have no experience of regulating or monitoring these 
facilities. And from a, a chemical and toxicological point of view, this is an extremely complicated process uh, to burn waste safely. Uh, uh, engineers think of tons and, and pounds of materials. Uh, toxicologists think of micrograms, picograms even. Um, we are worried about nanoparticles. When you, when you burn trash, you literally take hundreds of tons of material and convert it into trillions of tiny particles and gases. And once you've done that, then you've got the task of trying to capture all those particles and, and gases. And, and that is expensive, incidentally. Half the cost of a modern incinerator is on the air pollution control devices. So first box, you burn the stuff. Second box, you try to capture it in your air pollution control. Then you need a third box. Then you need a place to put this ash, the fly ash. Right. The better the incinerator gets, the more toxic the fly ash is. And the, the company just sort of waves its fingers about using this in cement. Uh, this, is, this is a fairy tale. Uh, this is hazardous waste. In Germany, where they, the company that they want to use, um, in Germany, the fly ash is put into nylon bags and then put into salt mines. In other words, we treat it as hazardous waste. We don't even bother to test it. They know it's hazardous waste. That's like dealing with nuclear waste almost, isn't it? You've got to I mean, store it away. That's, that's exactly how they handle low-level radioactive waste in Germany. I actually went down in one of the uh, the, the salt mines, and I think it was Sounderhausen in, in former East Germany, went down and saw how carefully these nylon bags were put into the various caves in the, in the salt mines. So, yeah, it, it, it it's, <laughs> it's ironic. I mean, it's totally unnecessary. If you don't burn the stuff, you don't get this fly ash, this toxic fly ash. And just to to, to bring this into, I think, common sense, a lot of the toxic metals like cadmium are, are in plastics. And as long as you're in the plastics, you're not breathing those up your nose. But right. the moment you yeah. burn that plastic, then those the cadmium is released as these tiny particles and or gas, then you can breathe it. So you are absolutely increasing the potential contact between these toxic substances, which are held in their products and packaging uh, as long as they're in the in that form. But the moment you burn them, that's when you get a host of problems, including when you burn trash, you produce some of the most toxic substances that we've ever made in a chemical laboratory, which is what got me excited in 1985. I'd heard about dioxins from Agent Orange, but when I was told that they've got to build a facility down the road that would produce these same substances simply by burning trash, I was horrified, horrified. Okay, so... There's no temperature that you can actually burn stuff at that completely destroys it? No, no. Well, first of all, you can't destroy metals. Metals are elements. Right, of course. But yeah. The problem with incineration is you destroy a lot of the material, okay? A lot of the bulk of the material is destroyed. But in the burning process, you recreate new toxic substances. This is where the dioxin interference come in. And it isn't just in the furnace. The most of this stuff is actually formed 
in the air pollution control device. When the gases cool down, that's when you get this formation. So that's why I say it's extremely complicated. And the Germans, being Germans and German engineers, yes, they've done, they've got all the bells and whistles to, to capture this stuff, but it doesn't work all the time, especially during upset conditions and during startup and shutdown of facility. It, it, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, it's only, this has only emerged in the last few years. It's during, during startup, you can form more dioxin than they predict in, in a few hours than they predict for the whole year. And so unless you are capturing the emissions during startup and shutdown and um, upset conditions, you're going to grossly underestimate the emissions. And that's what they've been doing with six-hour tests. They come in, the company knows when the testing uh, um, company is coming in. Um, then they put a probe in the stack, the chimney stack, collect a sample for six hours, send the filters off to get them analyzed. And then a few months later, somebody, usually not the public, finds out what was coming out on that those during those six hours. And then they take that data and extrapolate for 8,000 hours of real operation. Now, in the last few years, the last 10 years, in Germany and Belgium, um, companies have uh, buttressed the six-hour test with a four-week putting in the probe in and collecting a sample for four weeks. That enables you to get the startup shutdown and the upset conditions. And what they found is between 400 and 1,200 times more dioxin was coming out based upon the concentration, based upon these four-week tests. That was the first shot. Hundreds of times more coming out than they had estimated. And then the second thing is, even with these four-week testing, they are missing some of the dioxin. And we know that because now they're looking at chicken's eggs near modern incinerators in the, the Netherlands, in, in Spain, in, in France. And they are finding that the chicken's eggs are being contaminated with dioxin at, at above safe levels. So even these four-week tests are not picking up all the dioxin. And I should tell you that Germany does not yet measure the dioxin in chicken's eggs near their incinerators. So yeah. I'm afraid, as I say, it's complicated. It's complicated. And it's not something you should be putting in the hands of a newcomer. Can you explain what dioxin is for our audience, please? Oh boy, it's it's is that okay? It's, it's easier to it's easier to do it with your hands than it is with the name. If I gave you the name of dioxin, you'd probably faint. It's uh two three seven eight tetra tetrachlorodibenzoparadioxin. Now oh, wow. that makes okay. you want to run for them. Let me do it simply. If you can understand this part, Paul, we're on track. Okay. Imagine that this is a benzene ring. Now a benzene ring is six carbons, six carbon atoms with a hydrogen at each corner. That's a benzene ring. And a right. Belgian scientist dreamt this up, this structure, while he was sleeping in front of the fire. He dreamt this up. He, he saw a snake biting its own tail. <laughs> oh, and he thought of a circle. They couldn't understand C6H6, what kind of structure it had, but he had a ring structure. Okay. If you've got that, the rest is easy. If you two join two benzenes together, you get a substance called biphenyl. They could have called it bicycle, but they called it biphenyl. 
And now you've got 10 positions open. And if you substitute chlorine atoms for those hydrogens at each of those corners, you've got a family of compounds called polychlorinated dibenzyl. Right. PCBs, PCBs. Everyone's oh, heard of PCBs PCB. before, yeah. Okay, so that's where now, that's where that comes from. I, I've got it. That, yeah. this, the two benzene rings with chlorine substituted around, that's all. And chlorine is the culprit because it makes substances very persistent. Now, if you burn PCBs, only partially an oxygen gets in between two of these carbons and you form a third ring in the middle. And those are called furans, Polychlorinated dibenzofurans. And if you put two oxygens between, you've got the dioxins. Benzene, biphenyl, PCBs, furans, dioxins. Why are they so toxic? Um, They're very stable um, uh, to heat, and that's why they're formed in incineration. And they are fat-soluble. And normally the liver converts fat-soluble nasties toxic substances, pesticides, air pollutants, and so on, into water-soluble products. Now, they might have hurt you until that process has taken place in the liver, but at least at that point, the kidney can excrete the water-soluble byproducts. The trouble with PCBs and dioxins is the liver can't do that. And so the PCBs and dioxins build up in our body fat over, over many, many years. In fact, a man can't get rid of these dioxins from our fat once they're there. A woman can. Wow. She can okay. get rid of them by having a baby. Okay. In, when, she, when she's having a baby, the dioxins in her fat move in nine months, transfer to the fetus. And so this tiny little human being is huge concentrations of dioxins. Okay, so that's not a good thing. It's no not way. a good thing. And the, the, to, to complete the story, what makes it very, very bad is that dioxins uh, interfere with hormones which control fetal development. They can, The hormones control mental development, thyroid hormones, and they control sexual development. So you, you have the potential to disrupt both the mental and sexual development of our babies. That's what makes dioxin very scary stuff. Presumably, local authorities should be aware of this information. I know that you've um, consulted uh, on this specific plan here um, with Te Awamutu in New Zealand. Um, and from what you said, uh, the, the way the sort of the measurement and the the kind of accountability on waste coming out of these plants is sort of fudged. Um, how could anyone go ahead with an idea like it's preposterous in, in this day and age, especially when there are better alternatives. I mean, if we were talking about getting to the end of, end of edge of a cliff and if we don't do this and it's the end of civilization, absolute nonsense. Communities around the world have shown with a zero waste strategy, you can get 80 percent diversion from landfill, which incidentally is more than you can get from an incinerator because you only get a 75 percent reduction. You've got 25 percent is left as ash, the bottom ash and the fly ash so you we can do better with an alternative strategy which is source separation door-to-door collection composting recycling reuse repair plus 
um, pay-as-you-throw systems. There are, in fact, uh, communities in New Zealand who are doing a pretty good job with this. So we have models out there. And Italy... Italy has over 300 communities pursuing zero waste, and 4,000 communities are over 70% diversion from landfill, and uh, sorry, three, over 3,000, and 1,500 are over 80%. So, and San Francisco is up to 80% diversion. So, we've got plenty of examples around the world. And that's what I've been doing for the, uh, for the last 38 years in 69 countries is both sharing this success stories in places like Italy, the Philippines, um, San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as well as learning from them, because most of the things which happen with waste, no one hears about. His local successes are not broadcast on your national television or radio. It, it, it's It's people that find out about it, people that want to solve the problem. Uh, incidentally, I, you said I, I have been helping the community. The best way I helped, I think, was that I, if, for 90 minutes, I gave a PowerPoint presentation of all the arguments against incineration, and I'd be happy to come back and give another 90 minutes presentation on the alternative strategy. But that presentation was videotaped. So people, I'm happy to send them the PowerPoint if they want it. And locally, um, there's a fellow locally called um, Nick, I forgot, Nick Katian, I think his name is, but he was the one that uh, recorded my PowerPoint presentation. So there's no excuse for people not knowing. But the community poll is, is very well organized. I heard yesterday they got 900 written submissions into the council. A, a community of 10,000 to generate 900 written submissions is incredible. I know of no other place in the world which has been able to do such a thing. That is absolutely remarkable. So I think the, the community is well, well organized. And I have no doubt they're going to stop this incinerator. No doubt at all. Okay. Um, yep. But, 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 but that's only half the story. The second half of the story is we need them to become another pioneer community around the world in terms of pursuing zero waste. Yeah. So I think one of the benefits that the, um, the people um, you know, representing, I think it's Global Contracting Solutions, um, was saying in a, in a news report I saw that it was kind of helping the environment because it, it cleaned up a certain amount of waste. So that obviously, I think you've debunked that. But also that the energy from this plant would essentially power the equivalent to the entire town. Um, yeah. Is that something that stands up? Is that a claim that would stand up? No, no, no. You know, it, it is extraordinary. These plants are a waste of energy, not waste to energy. It's a good sales technique to talk about. Yes, they produce a little bit of energy locally, but what we're concerned about is the waste of energy globally. Let me explain. When you burn waste, you can only tap, uh, attack or try to reach the calorific value, you can only grab the calorific value in this fuel, the paper, the plastic, the glass, the, the rubber, and so on. You can get a fraction of that calorific value. What you can't get, Paul, is the amount back, the amount of energy that the, the globe 
has put into extracting the finite resources, transporting them around the world, manufacturing new products, products, and then more transport. That energy is called embedded energy. And no, you can't get that back from burning, but you can save it in the next cycle and the cycle next with recycling, reuse, and composting. And back in 1994, a consulting company in the United States called Franklin Associates said, if you burn a ton of waste, it you get about 5 million BTUs. If you recycle a ton of waste, including reuse and composting, you save 16 million BTUs. So over three times more energy is saved by a strategy, a zero waste strategy, than you than you get from burning. So it's it's really a waste of energy. And in terms of environmental impacts, a rule of thumb is that if you burn 50 tons of waste a day, you get one megawatt. Well, a windmill will give you three megawatts. Now, could, could just consider the impacts. Nothing of, burned. <laughs> yeah, it is. Every, any way you look at it, it doesn't make sense. Um, one of the things I've learned in thirty-eight years is there are no magic machines to solve the waste problem. There are no right. magic machines. There's no magic machines. You need better organization. You need better education, and we need better industrial design. Everybody talks about the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. And, of course, in recycle, they include compost. Okay, but there's a fourth R, and the fourth R is redesign. A community cannot get to zero waste by itself. Community responsibility with source separation, door-to-door collection, composting, recycling, reuse, repair, zero waste research, uh, pay as you throw. We can go a long way. We can get to 80%. Wow. In some places more. Yep. But you need industrial responsibility. You need industrial responsibility. We need better industrial design for the 21st century. So, um, Paul, what form would that take? Is that a material science thing? Um, yeah. Actually, it's it's everything you can think of. Right. You know, we spent 300 years messing up this planet, 300 years since the Industrial Revolution. And we've got to this point now where we're over-consuming. We would need five planets if everybody consumed as much as the average yeah. American. Yeah. It's going to take a big, big effort to, redo, to move towards sustainability. You need everybody. You need philosophers. You need psychologists. You're going to need engineers. You're going to need chemists and physicists and scientists, and you're going to need artists and musicians to, to change people's attitude. Basically, the American attitude is the more you consume, the happier you become. Yeah. And that's why we've got this throwaway society. And what we've got to persuade people is you don't need to be consuming things to get happier. You've got to consume less, enjoy more. That's you the think, challenge. Do you think we can ever get to a point where that um, consumption, I mean, overconsumption is not good, but people do seem to naturally want to consume things yes, uh, yes. to the level of where there's a certain satisfaction in life from that, uh, but also 
we, you know, achieve the other goals? Is there any kind of, because that's the thing, people don't want their lifestyle or their, yeah, that perceived happiness taken away from them. You're absolutely right. This is this is why I say you need you need psychologists, and sociologists, and, and philosophers to look at this. My hope is that most people's lives uh, surround their children. What is what kind of world they're going to live for their children? We we make so many sacrifices for our children, and the, the happiness of our children is our is our happiness. So that's think of the happiness. The other thing is. I think the opposite to overconsumption is community development. Um, overconsumption is seeing life as objects. Community, community is seeing life about us, other people, living with other people, playing with other people, having fun with other people. Now, the closest that we've got in the zero waste strategy to what I'm talking about is the reuse and repair center, the community reuse and repair center. We used to do that. We used to do that. Yeah, yeah, and they're doing it. We used to repair our bikes. Dad used to repair the washing machine, you know, fix the car, that sort of thing. But, you know, I went into one of these places and there was this chief executive officer, chief executive, and he's repairing a fan, you know, the fan that goes around. I said, what are you doing as a chief executive officer in this reuse place, spending your valuable time repairing an electric fan? He says, well, in my job as a chief executive, I never see any results. You know, it's all on the future. It's all this future stuff. But here I can come in, I can grab the thing and I can repair it. And he's happy. He was happy doing this on a Saturday because he's meeting other people. Other people value him. They meet him. They talk to him. There's another guy there who's repairing bicycles. I said, I said, he, I said, you're retired. I said, why are you doing this? He says, well, I, I, I ran a bicycle show. I did this all my life. <laughs> but I, yeah. I do this. I can come in when I want. I can do it when I want. And this is my way of fight, fighting the dump, <laughs> he said. But reuse and repair, it is the, you know, talk about the circular economy. This is a circular economy. Think about it. Bicycles, books, CDs, clothing, furniture. You take them to the reuse place. No more manufacture, no more extraction involved, no more transport involved, no more manufacture. It's the same object going round and round and round. And you're meeting people. You're learning about your community. They can teach you how to build your own compost pile. So many wonderful things can happen. We've got to get people. People are our salvation, not bloody machines and not consultants. Can you see it happening? Yes, I've seen it happening. I, well, no, in- I mean, at a scale that, you know, addresses the the, the big question, let's say. Well, I I know this. I know that you can go to communities in Italy, you can go to San Francisco, you go to all these places, and and people will see it. There will be no resistance to it. They'll say, I want this in my town, number one. Number two, we know it creates jobs. Uh, Capanari in Italy, they've set up six reuse and repair operations. They're creating 38 jobs just in that, it doesn't cost the community anything. They're, they're just getting people are donating furniture, etc. They're repairing it, they're selling it, and they create 30, 38 jobs. So you've got jobs and small businesses, community development, 
Oh, it, it, it's a win, 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 win situation. It's the politics of yes. I mean, I was sick and tired of saying, no, incinerate the way. No, discard it. In, 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 <laughs> 88 times. No, incinerate the way. No, in the door. And then Brilliant. if someone makes yeah. the sixty. So say yes, yes to reuse, yes to recycling, yes to composting, yes to zero waste, yes to sustainability. Yes, yes, yes. We want a positive movement in which young people can get involved, which is practical. It's hands-on. You're doing, you're not talking. In Italy, the whole policy is talk, 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 talk. But in Italy now, we've got young people doing, 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 and mayors. Uh, the, the thing about Italy being so successful in this is that it's a mayor-driven society. You've got literally thousands of little villages, and they're all run by mayors. And those mayors and towns and those mayors have tremendous flexibility in the decision making on waste management. So once you persuaded the mayor that this is a good idea, off you go. Yeah, I'm just listening to you, I think what's missing is people like you. Who can sort of transfer that enthusiasm, that can do, that scientific knowledge, and evangelize? Is that the word? I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. I, that was this, that's what that, I wondered. You know, when I started fighting incinerators, what box they were going to put me in? Because once you could put someone into a box, then yeah. you could throw away the box, give them a label, put them in the box, and you could throw away him and her or all the ideas all go out because you've got you've got one label and that's what they call me an environmental evangelist and i said fine i'll i'll take yeah. that i'll take that god recycles the devil burns as far as incineration <laughs> but <laughs> to be to to be serious that's why i've been busy that's why this issue i retired in 2006 Right. Uh, now, 17 years later, I've been to many countries since then. 69, according to my information. I enjoy it. The audiences enjoy it. And yes, there are people everywhere we go, we'll find somebody like me coming out of this who's just as enthusiastic. And they go and, you know, proselytize around. Um, right now, activists from the Philippines are going to Indonesia and Vietnam and spreading their successful model of zero waste. Okay, if any of the local officials of Wai, Waipa, which is the district that Tiawamutu is in, listening right now or playing the replay, they're considering this. Have you got um, have you got a message for them just to sort of drive it home even even more? Well, you know, when I first heard about incineration in 1985, I thought it was a good idea. I thought yeah. you'd get rid of all those landfills. You you just have to read a little bit. And once you read a little, little bit and see that there are much saner alternatives, which are not only better for your community, but better for your country and better for the planet, it's not easy to be converted. But if, if they need more ammunition, do please look at the videotape. It's uh, less than 90 minutes. And all the arguments against incineration are spelt out in that. And I'm happy to come back, as I said, and give another one on on the alternatives, the zero, which is what I really like talking about. I haven't talk, had a formal um, talk against incineration for nearly 10 years. Well, that would be the next thing for this council to consider, right? Yes. If they reject this, the next logical step is to, well, maybe talk with you again 
and uh, whoever else, because I know there's some other operators in New Zealand doing, um, you know, this kind of energy recovery in a different way in the way that you're talking about, and and go that way if if you yeah, want to go well, anyway. Absolutely. And at the meeting that I did, I spoke for, actually I should have spoken for five minutes, but someone had to read it because the sound system wasn't oh, working. It's always the but way. at that same meeting, Sue Coots, I think her name is Sue Coots from uh, Zero Waste uh, New Zealand or the Maori term for that. Uh, she gave an excellent presentation. So there are very good people in New Zealand who know all about zero waste, all about the strategy that I'm talking about. Um, to put it down to one sentence, if we can't reuse it, if we can't recycle it, if we can't compost it, we shouldn't be making it. Okay. Not we should be destroying it, but we shouldn't be making it. We need to get better at designing packages and products. And that's the challenge. We're not going to be able to solve it overnight, but moving. Uh, if you build an incinerator, it's going to take you 25 years to pay for it, at least. So you, in, what you're saying is, in 25 years, no new technology, no new strategy is going to come along, which will enable our community uh, to solve this problem. And incidentally, this is not a solution for this community, WIPA, you're going to be burning more waste than you produce. You're going to be producing, they would be producing more ash than they're currently making uh, trash. So they're not solving their own problem. They're being seduced into going into the waste industry. They are being seduced to having something that nobody else wants. Show me the list of communities that are waiting to grab this project. If this community in its wisdom says, no, we don't want it, bye-bye. There won't be a list of, Brian, I'm sorry, Paul, there won't be a, a list of communities in New Zealand saying, send it here. Well, already we I'm aware of two that have rejected it. Yeah. So, you know, um, um Two, two to them and zero to the, to the incinerating people so far. Yeah. In, in the United States, between 85 and 95, our group, Work on Waste USA, um, stopped over 300 trash incinerated wow. projects. Okay. Over 300. They've only built one. They've only built one in the United States since 1997. They've got your face on a dartboard somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Not him again. <laughs> I can see what Ralph Nader was talking about now. Um, well, Professor Paul Connor, thank you for coming on RCR Reality Check Radio and explaining that. It was really interesting. Thanks for your time. And it'll be fascinating to see, um, given your presentation and um, uh, I guess the activities or the activism of the local community, what that uh, decision will be. But I got a kind of got a feeling it's not going to get across the line, but hey, what do I know? Well, thank you, Paul, and thank you for what you're doing. I think we're in a very precarious age right now. Yeah. In the United States, we're getting so much censorship. The mainstream media is just cowed in to pressures. And I have seen uh, uh, one of your programs, uh, one of your interviews. I was very impressed. It, it, we must have this kind of space for people to learn stuff that the mainstream media is not bringing them. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. And maybe we'll talk again. In fact, yes, I'd I like hope. to because I really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> what I do too, it's fun. Okay. Well, well thanks again. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye, Paul. Bye-bye.
RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.